So, so good to see everybody. I'm uh, just thrilled to stand up in front of you. I'm reminded constantly that the Lord is present with us. He is not distant. He is present. And how often the enemy comes to push the Lord away, to make the Lord seem distant. And one, he does that in a lot of different ways. We're going to talk about a few of them this morning. If I had to title the talk this morning, I would title it Pressing on to the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Pressing on to the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. And I'd like to start by reading Philippians 3, 8 through 14, which is, I think, a verse many of us, verses many of us are familiar with. Where Paul says, More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them mere rubbish, so that I may gain Christ and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death. If somehow I might attain to the resurrection from the dead, not that I have already grasped it all or have already become perfect, but I press on if I may also take hold of that for which I was even taken hold of by Christ Jesus. Brothers and sisters, I do not regard myself as having taken hold of it yet, but one thing I do. Forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. When Paul shared these words, he was talking to a church that already were believers. This wasn't a call to people to say, you don't know God, you need to know God. This was instruction to people who already knew God. And he said, I want you to know how I rank things in my existence and he had a very interesting ranking because he says, I have a ranking where everything else is loss, and then there's Jesus. He said, I count all this other stuff as loss, and then there's Jesus. And then he says, not only doesn't it bother me to count these things as loss and to suffer the loss of all these things, he says, because on the scale, I consider them to be rubbish. Now, that's in the New American Standard. In other versions, it says uh, stronger words. I consider it to be dung. It's at the lowest level. I consider it to be rubbish, trash, compared to knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. He said everything by comparison changes. Because when we meet Christ, the Scripture says that we are changed and that all things become new. If any person be in Christ, he is a new creation Behold, the old has passed and the new has come. Now, for many of us, we will hear that verse and we go, yes, lots of old past, but I am still tragging along a few things. But see, God wants to change the whole kit and caboodle. He wants the whole thing changed. He wants everything to become new. <clears throat> the Lord, I think, helped me with this extremely. I heard this example. It's been very good for me. If I was to take a cup of flour and put it into a bowl and then break an egg and put the contents of an egg in the bowl, and then mix it all up. It may <coughs> interest you to know I've never done that in my whole life, but I have seen it done. But if I was to do that, that egg would blend in in a certain way into that flour, and that flour would blend in in a certain way in that egg, and they would become a new creation. It's not flour. It's not egg. It's something new. But if Martha came up to me and said, I've decided I want that egg back. Well, I can't go get the egg back because the egg and the flour have made a new creation. It is not extractable. And if Jane came up to me and said, I need that flour back, the flour has mixed in. And that's what the Lord does with us. Jesus is within us. We're within us. But we're mixed together in a heavenly way to make a new creation. And that's why it says in 1 Corinthians, if any man is in Christ, he is one spirit with him. Because we are mixed together in the spirit with the Lord. And that's how the spirit of Jesus 
the Holy Spirit dwells within us. Now, these things are hard for us to grab hold of, you know, because we can't think of things that way. I think the egg and the, and the flower helps, but it's hard for us to grab hold of how Jesus can, we can be the temple of the Holy Spirit, Jesus' Spirit, and at the same time be me. But Jesus mixes us together in a wonderful way to make a new creation that isn't the way we used to be, and it's to be molded after the image of Christ. Now, the one thing when we're talking about pressing on to the high calling of God in Christ Jesus, God's high calling is that Jesus is the firstborn among many brethren. That Jesus is the firstborn, and we're to be the follow-ups. We are to be the further ones, the extra brethren, the ones that come after Jesus. He intends for us to be transformed into the fullness of the stature of Christ. And that's what it says in Ephesians. It says that we might be changed to the fullness of the stature of Christ. Now, Jesus would all the time mention things when he was ministering that when you read the scripture, Irene, you read this verse and you go, I just don't know if we can do that one. Have you ever read a verse like that that you go, that could be aspirational, but not necessarily practical? Have you ever done that? One verse in the scripture that always hit me that way was when Jesus said, the things that I do, you shall do. And even greater things shall you do. Well, if I'm honest with the Lord, I'd say, Lord, if I could do one one hundredth of what you did, I would be more than satisfied. But that's not what he said. He said, the things that I do, you will do, and greater things. Now, the enemy will tend to take Scripture verses like that, let them float in our mind for just a moment, and then usher them out to the side and put them in a closet. Don't think about those things anymore. That's for aspirational. That's for Billy Grahams and great Christians. You know, but that's not you. Look at the things you have trouble with. But it's not our own power that's going to transform us. Philippians 1, 6 says that he who began the good work in you will continue it until the day of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the one who began the good work, and Jesus is the one who continues it. But we have got to give him free reign. We have got to give him free access. And every time Jesus talked to people, he would say things like, but you will not come unto me. When he was in Revelations 3 talking to the Christians, he said, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If you will open the door, I will come in. Now notice Jesus didn't say, If you open the door, I'll consider coming in. All you have to do is open the door and he will come in. And that message was to Christians, not to non-Christians. It was to the church at Laodicea who were Christians. And he said, If you open up, then I will come in. So the Lord is constantly working with us so that we open up more so that Jesus can come into all the things in our life so that we'll be transformed into his image. And the scripture says that by actually beholding his glory, in 1 Corinthians it says just by beholding his glory, we are transformed into his image, just by beholding him. You know, one of my great memories of Corvilla in the past was that we went through three or four days of worshiping and singing and everything, and I remember leaving Corvilla saying, I am clean. I am clean from head to toe. I feel clean. I feel spiritually washed. I feel like all the junk is gone, and I want to stay feeling clean like this. It's just a wonderful thing as you are beholding the glory of the Lord, as you worship Him, as you enter into His presence, it changes you. The scripture says it changes you from one degree of glory to the next, and it changes each one of us. So I look at me and go, well, Jim, you know all that. Why do you have such trouble letting Jesus come and have free reign in your life? Well, it turns out that there's an enemy roaming around here, and the enemy is not inactive. He is active. Um, I, Helen and I saw a uh, documentary on Corey Ten Boom uh, 10 days ago or so, and Corey Ten Boom was a fabulous Christian that was in Holland during World War II, and her family would put Jews in a particular little room they had. They called it the hiding place, and they would keep Jews so that the Nazis couldn't kill them, but the Nazis caught them, and they sent her to concentration camp. And she has a great story. I'm not going to go through everything, but the Lord really moved in her life. 
But she had a short, a short little poem or saying that she came up with. It really resonated with me. And what it said was, look at the world and be distressed. Look inside and be depressed. Look at Jesus and be at rest. And that was a woman who knew the Lord. But we're constantly, the enemy is constantly hitting us on multiple fronts like that. We have a war in Ukraine going on. Well, what happens in your life? Um, unfortunately, Helen has the CNN notification on her phone activated. And that means when anything breaks on the news, it's, you know, and you go, well, what is this? We are inundated with news and events and things to occupy our mind that tell us that the world is in distress. I personally think I would have had a rough time in World War II. I, I mean, I probably would have gotten up every morning and looked at the map that they published and said, where are the lines? Are we doing good? Are we doing bad? And we put a heavy focus then on the things that are going on in the world. Now, we're to be in this world, but not of this world. And it's very important that we allow the Lord to lift us from that and not for our minds and our thoughts and our hopes and our dreams to be caught in the circumstances of the world. We're to be lights to the world to help change the world, but not be drawn down and be distressed by the world. And then if we look inside at our own abilities, we're all honest, we look inside, we're very aware of our frailties. We're very aware of the things that we don't do well. I, I just can't tell you it's, it's really uncanny, but before any time we have equipping of the saints, I just know the day or the day and a half before that that the enemy is going to plant himself in my mind saying, well, look about this, and what about this, and what about this? And last night I felt like I had a, all the things I wanted to say put together, and I went upstairs to kind of, this happens to me often, I'll go upstairs and say, well, I just want to polish a few things, and two and a half hours later I walk out of the room because different things come in. Now the Lord promises he'll get things there in time at the right place. He knows how to do that. But a lot of times, he doesn't give us everything until the last notice. Corey Tim Boom had another story about her father, where she said, her father told her and said, when do I give you the ticket to get onto the train? She was a young girl then, about eight or nine or ten. And her father said, and she said to her father, you give it to me right before I get on the train. And often our Heavenly Father does that too. But if you're like me, Irene, you like to see the three-month plan. What's the strategic plan? How is this going to be handled? What happens if this doesn't work? What's our fallback? And who's going to be responsible for our fallback? And was this person trustworthy last time when they were responsible? And how is this going to happen? Don't we need to call them up again the morning of and make sure they understand everything is on their show? That's making sure by our strength that everything works out. Now, we should be responsible. Don't get me wrong. It's correct to plan. It's correct to call on the Lord and ask him to help us do things. But our trust has got to be that no matter what happens, the reason that we are confident is not because we have great plans, but because God is with us. And that's what he told people in the Old Testament. All the stories in the Old Testament when people would complain to God and say, there's no way I can handle the thing you're saying, God never gave them more details of the plan. He always said, don't worry, I will be with you. When Moses complained to him and said, I'm not even a speaker, and you're asking me to go into the throne room of Egypt and persuade the head of Egypt and all his counselors that he should let go of this enormously profitable slave industry he's got going, I don't even speak. Well, you need to go over here and talk to Aaron. God's response was, oh, I know you don't speak, but it's okay, I'll be with you. But Moses complained again, because God being with him wasn't enough. I don't know how God took that, but he eventually let Aaron go with him. But it is an amazing thing how our mind is so set in this world, and we have got to get our mind set above where Christ is. And it's not the natural thing that happens. So I want to go through a few things that Satan uses to try to get us to the place that we have some resistance or some pocket where Jesus really isn't allowed to have free reign. And some of these are touchy. I, I consider this group kind of able to handle anything touchy. 
Um, but some of these, uh, to me, are just ex extraordinarily meaningful. And the first one is that we are not willing to give him our whole heart. Our whole heart. Now, lots of people are willing to give Jesus a good chunk of time and duties and activities. But the Bible says that, Jesus, that God is after our heart. In Mark 12, uh, 30 and 31, when asked what was the greatest commandment, Jesus said that the greatest commandment is that you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, and with all your strength. In Matthew 15, 8, Jesus points out, he says, these people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. And in 1 Samuel 16, 7, and he was talking about how God searches the hearts. He says, he says to him, But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance or at the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For God does not see as man sees, since man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. The way the world goes is it says, well, there's Ken Harris. He's an excellent fellow. He has these knowledge, this knowledge and skills and ability. He's accomplished in his work. He gets around. People like to see him. He's a great conversationalist. He's a wonderful person to be around. We really like that Ken Harris guy because of his talents. That's not how God does it. God looks at our heart and says, do you love me? Do you love me? The criteria for David was, I'm looking for a man after my own heart. I have had a soldier who had big strength, Saul. But I'm not looking for that. I'm looking after a man after my own heart. Psalm 37, 4 says, Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. God is looking that we delight in him, that he is our heavenly father. Now, when we're young... When we're children, uh, we regard our parents, usually we regard our parents as they're going to take care of me, they love me. I mean, we've got lots of situations that doesn't happen. But a loving mother and father to a child is all that you need. No three-year-old gets up in the morning and goes, it's April 9th. Taxes are due April 15th. Mom, Dad, have you talked to the TurboTax special consultant? you know you got a special refund from the government, that could be taxed. I don't know if you've allotted for that. No three-year-old talks like that. They just go, mom and dad are handling those things. Now, this is a strange thing, but Jesus said, except you come as a little child, you can't enter in the kingdom of heaven. And if we come to God saying, God, you have to be this way, and God, you also need to give due consideration of my talents. And it does need to be recognized when the group gets together. It's important that someone says what I did, and it's known. That's important to me. I don't ask for a lot, but I would like to be recognized. A small certificate would help. You got me? But that's not the way the Lord is. The Lord comes and says, really, none of you have any talents and abilities worth beans anyway. He's much nicer than that. But that's the way it is. We exalt ourselves because we compare ourselves with others. And so we say, well, compared to this other group, these people that had stiff necks, they don't follow the Lord. I have followed the Lord. At least, sure, I've made mistakes. But doggone it, I've followed the Lord. They haven't followed the Lord, so I'm in pretty good shape. Now, we don't say that. We would certainly never say that to another Christian. But the enemy sows that into our heart because the enemy is trying to sow division. And he's trying to sow things where we exalt ourselves all the time instead of the Lord. Worship really is falling down before the Lord and exalting him. That's what worship is. That's why it's so important. Many, many times in my life when I've said, for some reason I don't sense God near me. I don't sense him being here. I don't seem to break through. The Lord keeps coming back to me with the words of the 100th Psalm saying, Enter into his gates with thanksgiving and into his courts with praise and bless his name. And I think many of you in here know this. All you have got to do is enter into his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise and bless his name and the presence of the Lord becomes a whole lot more real. Now, circumstances will not lead you in that direction. 
But that, he didn't say if the circumstances look good. He said, come to the Lord this way. And when we come to the Lord conditionally, he doesn't have our whole heart. If we come to the Lord and say, look, I've got this one thing I've been praying about for 20 years. You need to make some movement on that. And then I'll give you some more of me. You can't come that way. The Lord is God, and he wants our whole heart. The psalmist says in Psalm 139, 23, and 24, Search me, God, and know my heart. Search me, O God, and know my heart. And in Romans 8, 27, it says, It is God who searches the hearts. And in Jeremiah 17, 10, I, the Lord, search the heart. But there's one verse that has recently become more meaningful to me, and that's 2 Chronicles 16, 9. In 2 Chronicles 16, 9, it says, For the eyes of the Lord roam throughout the earth, that he may strongly support those whose heart is completely his. The eyes of the Lord roam throughout the earth. I like to think of him roaming throughout the earth right now and landing in this room and saying, I'm looking for people whose heart is completely mine so that I can, what does he say? Strongly support them. The Lord is looking that our heart be completely his. And the enemy fights that. The enemy fights that on many grounds. Don't give him your heart. If you give him your heart, you have nothing left to counter if he makes a move that you don't like. If you give him your heart, he is your love. And you want to have control more over that. He can have lots of your love, sure. But don't let him be the love of your life for whom you have given your whole life. And the enemy talks like that. And he brings those feelings in. Is the Lord worthy of our whole heart? He most certainly is. And he's asking for it. And if we will enter into that place, it will change our ability to press into the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. The second thing, and I want to put a lot of emphasis on this, is that the enemy sows among Christians that they be condemning rather than rescuing. The enemy sows among Christians that they be condemning rather than rescuing. And the way that he sows that this is to be done is that he picks out a particular person and encourages you to put that person in a category or a bucket. And then to say, everybody in that category is bad, and you're in that category, so you're bad. Now, this is a terrible thing to say, but certainly happens within the church, happens without the church, certainly happens in political realms. You know, I mentioned I would have a hard time if I was in World War II. If you had told me in World War II I should be spending four years praying for the salvation of Adolf Hitler, to be honest with you, I think I could have prayed 10 minutes and that would be it. I just didn't have it. I just don't have it. And when I know the Lord has touched my heart to pray for Putin. Now, I hate to say and confess to you, but I have done an obligatory prayer for Putin. I think some of you know what I mean by that. The Lord said you got to do it, so you do it, check the box, and go on. But I didn't like it. Why didn't I like it? Well, I don't like that guy and what he's doing. Well, the whole world was sinning, and Jesus came and gave himself for the whole world. And when he talked to us, he said, pray for your enemies. Pray for your enemies. And the people who were killing him on the cross, he said to the Lord, do not hold this against them because they don't know what they're doing. Well, that was a big marker to me. I don't have the love for Putin I need to have. I don't know if I have any love for Putin, to be honest. I'm just being honest with you. But the Lord says to pray for your enemies. It's not up to me to go, I'm going to pray for my enemies if I feel like it. The Lord said, pray for your enemies. And most of you have walked with the Lord long enough to know that if you'll obey the Lord, later you'll go, oh, that really was the right thing to do. Even if you don't understand it now, if you obey the Lord... You're always going in the right direction. So one thing I need to do is to pray more for that guy and not talk so much about him, which I do. I mean, I can tell you bad things this guy has done. I could do the same thing with Hitler. I would have been terrible in World War II. 
Where is my ability to pray for those who are my enemies? But we have such a, tension, a, such an, such a tendency to talk about people and condemn them where Jesus looked at those who deserved to be condemned and rescued them. And he sent us out as rescuers. Just like he was sent, he sends us out as rescuers. And sometimes it just means shut your mouth. Just don't say anything. Just get down with the Lord and hold it up before the Lord and don't say anything. Now, this political leadership is one realm, but people we're in touch with is another realm. People that are intimately connected in our lives. So, you know, when I was sick, uh, when they were sick, I got together, put together a really good dinner, took it over to their house. They sent me a really short thank you note. It was three lines, not very specific. I don't even know if they remember what I did. And now I'm sick, and are they helping me out at all? They can't be found, and I'm really sick. Now, how is that for gratitude? Do you hear that? If we're in that area, we desperately need to say, Lord, come in and transform me there so that I love like you love. That I am not doing things just so I get something back. Make a love inside of me that desires the best for every person. And I think in my case, it means a lot of times just shutting up your mouth and bringing your whole heart in prayer to the Lord and keep asking him to transform you. He will transform you. There'll be the enemy right there saying, he's not going to change you. Doggone it, Jim, you're 70 years old. Any change that was going to happen has happened by now. You just better hope you can coast to the end. That's the enemy. The enemy is always about coasting to the end. Hang on. He's not going to get anybody in this room to deny Christ. What he's trying to do is for you not to be a light. He looks at Fran and goes, Fran's going to be a light. I want to limit her to a five-watt bulb. God wants her to be 100 watts. Satan wants her to be five watts. So he's going to diminish her. So I'm going to get Fran to say things like this. Gads, the world's in trouble. Boy, if I had known this when I was having children, I don't know if I'd have had this many children. But boy, it's in trouble. Thank God that we've, I probably only got this many years left in my life. I'm going to hang on to the end. Don't know how the rest are going to handle it. That's what he wants Fran to say. Somebody listen to Fran say that. Fran, I'm picking on you. I don't mean to pick on you, but i to take some water here. They want to hear somebody say, oh, Fran, she's a Christian. So that's how Christians deal with it. They panic and run to the end and hope that they can hang on. That's not how we're to deal with it at all. I'm always thinking about Moses at the edge of the Red Sea. There's a very good documentary on this. They really think they have nailed down quite well where they crossed the Red Sea. And it looks like that the water there was at least a half a mile deep, at least a half a mile deep where they crossed. Well, when Moses came to the edge of the Red Sea, the people were about to kill him. Now, behind them were the forces of the Pharaoh, and in front of them was the ocean, was the Red Sea. So to the people's minds, looking at the circumstances in the world, there were two things that could happen. We can go into the sea and drown, or we can go into the army and be sliced to bits. Now, neither one of those is desirable. Eat, no, and that's just where we feel in life sometimes. My choices are bad and worse, and that's my choices, bad and worse. And that's all I've got. And we do what those people did, and we never allow God to have an option we have not thought of. Now, the enemy is right there going, Dick, it's bad and worse. These are the two options, Dick. Be a man and pick one. That's the enemy. But the Bible says that God is always with us and that victory is in Jesus. Jesus said, be of good cheer because what? I have overcome the world and the world ruler, Satan. I have overcome them. But in the world, you're going to have tribulation or testing. But be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. Well, if we're in Christ, then we have that victory. But if we're partially in Christ and we just kind of wander around in some other areas that are our own, we don't have that victory. And we need to be in him. And it means in our lives that we recognize God is God. And if we read the stories in the Old Testament, 
God regularly, it's fair to say that God almost always responds in a way that nobody prayed. Nobody sitting in front of Moses said, Lord God, please open the Red Sea. Nobody said that. Nobody said that. And God chastised Moses a little bit because he said, don't be concerned about this, but lift your staff and the waters will part. And he a little bit chastised him. And so Mo I could see Moses, these people were going to kill him. So he raised his staff and something nobody else thought could happen, happened. And there was, now we believe, a half a mile of water that you walked through. And the scripture says in multiple places that the water walled, W-A-L-L-E-D, walled up on the left and walled up on the right. So, Candy, if I was walking through there and 10 years old, I could look up over here and see fish. Say, Mom, I'm going to go up where the big fish are. You know, we're just going to walk through. And the Lord, of course, took the pillar of fire, which was in front of them, and put it behind them. If you've got a pillar of fire going with you, how can you not have faith? I hate to say this, but I even think I could have had faith if we had a pillar of fire going with us. Maybe not. But anyway, they had a pillar of fire. God didn't just leave them out there looking at dirt. And when they traveled in the wilderness, what did he do? He had a rock that followed them that issued water. And in 1 Corinthians 10, it says, and that rock was Christ who followed them. What about getting up in the morning and saying, Mom, today I'm going to walk next to the rock? Because it issues water. They just had a rock that followed them, and it issued water. A portable water fountain, a giant water fountain going through the wilderness. That'll stir up your faith. And every morning manna was on the ground. From where? From I don't know where, but it gets delivered. God did things to stir up their faith. But the scripture, but one of the things that we end up doing is that we get outside of the Lord and we look at options and we blame people. And we end up saying the bad things in my life are due to somebody. Uh, there's a saying where I work that uh, lack of preparation on your part does not justify an emergency on my part. I know you've heard something like that. I'll get some things on my desk that should have a three-week turnaround, but somebody was really slow getting it to me, and I have two days to get it done. Warm feelings do not spring from my heart at that moment. Now, warm feelings should spring from my heart. I should be praying for that person, but I'm not. And unfortunately, I may let somebody else know about what that person did. You got me? Why do I do that? That's a place in me that needs big changing. We need to be thinking, how can I get underneath this person that I'm meeting? Rather than condemn, how can I rescue them? Now, Jesus also said, do not judge lest you be judged. Now, in the Bible, the word judge has two meanings. One word for judge means to discern, to tell apart good and evil. The second word translated judge means to condemn. In this verse, it means condemn. So this verse should read, do not condemn so that you will not be condemned. And one of the reasons Jesus said do not condemn is that we condemn and we say bad things about other people. So here's an area that the enemy focuses on. You say, well, yeah, but I mean, you're talking kind of a small area here. It's not a small area because it has to do with what our heart is towards God. God told us not to do this, and yet we let this thing abide in us and keep going in us. You can't let that happen. Because that is sin, and it is sin that separates us from God. And in the end, we're going to be looking at the Lord Jesus and say, why did I allow anything in my life to keep me apart from you? How could I have been so bad to do that? Well, we don't have to be that way, but we need to recognize it as the hand of the enemy. The third thing that I want to mention is that the enemy puts a heavy emphasis on the cares of the world. Now, Jesus mentioned this in a parable, and he said that those that grow as a Christian, that they'll go through different stages, but even after they've gone through these early stages of Christian growth, they'll come to a place that they are maturing, like a plant matures. And then he said there will be a choking that occurs in that growth that comes from the choking like of vines and thorns, and that choking is caused by two things— the cares of the world, and the deceitfulness of riches. Now, I think most people in this room know that having lots and lots of money is not going to make you happy. We know well enough that that's the case. 
But the cares of this world, the enemy paints with a rosy picture. And so, Martha, he'll come up to you and say, now, Martha, are you a responsible person? Now, if you're a responsible person, and adults should be responsible, by the way, Martha. I think Helen and I looked at each other at 36, and we had three kids, and either Helen said it or I said it, but one of us said, are we adults yet? Because you don't take a test to be an adult. I don't know when we turned into adults. I'm pretty sure we've done it, though, because we're both old at 70, so we've got to have been adults here sometime. But what happens is he'll bring in this thing about, are you responsible? Are you a responsible person? Well, if you're a responsible person, you need to be taking care of these four, five, six, or seven things. And in these four, five, six, or seven things, Ken, are a lot of things you can't control. And they can be very anxious if you think about them a lot. Well, we are responsible people, and our most important responsibility is to get our life hidden in Christ so that the work of Christ can come through us because he said, if you will seek first my kingdom, then all of these other things will be handled, including these details of life and responsibilities and cares of the world. But if you seek first my kingdom, not seek my kingdom third, but seek my kingdom first, so it has preeminence, so that Jesus, being the Lord and King over my life, is the most important thing, not something that I work at sometimes, but is the most important things. Then he said, if you do that, God's going to take care of your clothes and your house and all these other things, whether your kid gets to college, who is that girl that your son's dating, who is that guy that your daughter's dating, you know, are they, are, they hooked, are, they, are they headed in the right direction? What about the job that your son's applying for? God knows how to deal with those things. We are really going to be embarrassed when we see the Lord in his power. We, we really are going to be embarrassed when we see his power because we keep telling God as if God needs instruction from us. And when Jesus taught us to pray, he preempted it by saying, before you pray, you need to recognize that God knows what you need before you pray. And one of the reasons that Jesus said that is because we don't act like that. We go to God going, look, this really needs fixing. It's been broken two years. Lord, I don't know what you're going to do about it, but this really needs fixing. And oftentimes, James, our prayers are like emails to God rather than conversations with the Almighty God sitting right next to us who loves us and cares for us. And I say they're like emails because we send them off and we hope God will read them. And then when he reads them, we hope he will put in a favorable response and take favorable action based on the email. But when you get close to the Lord, prayer is not a time where you take your top 20 lists and make it known to the Lord. But prayer is a time where you open up to the Lord, thanking him for who he is, that he has given his mercy to take care of you, and that he knows what's going on and has his arms around you. And then you can add these other things at the end. But my experience is when you approach the Lord that way, these other things at the end fade away because God doesn't really need to be reminded about those. And what he needs is for us to step deeper into him so that the love and the power of God flows through us. So the things about the world are something that Satan will work in the battlefield of the mind. And I say responsibility, Martha, because he goes down that path a lot of times. Well, you need to be responsible. And what he's saying is, if you need to be responsible, you should be worried and anxious because it's not all working out. And so you need to be worried and anxious. And he uses that path. But the most responsible thing we can do is to make sure our lives are hidden in Christ and God. Now, I want to be clear here. I'm not saying don't ever plan. It's fine to plan in the Lord and to hold up and say, Lord, this is getting together. I feel you've given me this responsibility in the body of Christ. There is a ministry of administrations. It's not something that you and I would say put in the ministry of the body of Christ, but it's the ministry in Romans 12 of administrations. It says of the, says of the teachers that they grabbed a hold of Stephen to handle the administrative matters so the, the apostles could deal more with the teaching. But there's a ministry of administrations, and planning is just fine. 
But when we let those things come that if I don't control it and handle all the conditions, I'm going to be anxious, that's when we've stepped away from the Lord. So I used to ask the Lord before I studied, I said, Lord, you know what I need to know? Help me to learn what I need to learn here. There's too much. Help me to learn what I need to learn. That's the kind of prayer the Lord's looking for. He wants to say, you think, you, you see this is where I want you to go? I want to give you what you need to do that. So the cares of the world can be tricked on us by thinking of our responsibilities. But we want to be responsible to be in Christ and to hold before him what we're doing, saying, not my will, but your will be done here. And that be true. The fourth thing I want to mention is bitterness. Now, this is an ugly one, but this is true in Christian's life. Now, we hold on sometimes to a bitterness about something that God has done or God has failed to do. I can't tell you how many stories. I, I, I watch a fair number of testimonies that are on YouTube. Some of them are fantastic testimonies. I love where the Lord has done great things. But sometimes people will go, well, I didn't come to God because I was born in a bad family. My father was an alcoholic. My mom didn't take care of us. My brother beat on me. How can I believe in a God if you're born in a family like that? And they're just bitter. And they went years and years and years and years and never found God. And then they find God, and God rescues them in an amazing way, and they're no longer bitter. But sometimes we have things in our life that we're just bitter about. Well, there was only so much money to go to college, and they spent it on your older brother, and you had to kind of make your own way. Well, why was that? I'm bitter about that. So-and-so-and-so -and -so got an opportunity, but I went out and got hurt at work. Why did I have to get hurt at work? I wasn't able to take care of that opportunity. We have things in our life that didn't go the way we want them to go, and instead of giving them over to the Lord and saying, Lord, I'm letting that be, we keep a little space, a little box hidden down where we're bitter, where we're bitter. And we said, you know, I worked very hard at my job, but this person who got the promotion was the niece of the boss. She came in, worked two months, and they gave her the promotion. That's not fair. And every time I see my boss, I want to go up to him and say, you mistreated me. You just gave preference to, your, you know, to someone in your family. Do you know how bad that looks? And we keep bitterness over here to the side. And it can be one of a hundred things. I know you all know examples. And lots of times it's fairly big things in life you know, that, that happen. Somebody comes up and says something about us that is really damaging and lying. And they influence a lot of people. And they never apologize their whole life. And they come up to you 20 years later like they're your best friend. And you feel like saying to them, you're not my best friend until you apologize for what you did in the 11th grade. Do you see? We are getting hurt from that because we keep that bitterness. The Scripture calls it a root of bitterness. In Hebrews 12, 15, it says... See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up causing trouble, and by it many be defiled. It's a root that just sticks in down there. Now, it's easy just to leave it down there, not mess with it, just have it there, visit it once or twice a year, put it back in the box, and then leave again. And that's what people do. You don't dwell on it days and days and days. You get too depressed. And sometimes can you look at it and go, I had to push through that, Lord. That needs to go on my good works list. I had to push through that. Even now, it's a bad burden on me, and I'm having to push through it. Remember that I pushed through this, Lord. We don't be that overt to the Lord, but that's the way we're thinking inside. This was a tough cross. Lot, not very many people had to bear this cross. I had to bear this cross. Take note of this, Lord. But what the Lord is saying, don't let there be a root of bitterness. Take where you've got a root of bitterness and pick it up and throw it out. You know, John went through this thing with cancer. I just can't tell you how many times I would talk with the Lord and say, and, and John can multiply this by 10, and Susan may multiply this by 20, but I would talk with the Lord and say, look, he's had it six months. Whatever you're teaching him, I think he's got it. 
Okay, notice how I default to you're teaching him something, you see, because that's kind of one of my explanations. How much ever suffering you wanted John to do so his next door neighbor could see that he had faith in situations that weren't favorable, they've seen it. It's six months. Six months is enough. Now it's time for John to get healed and for these things to come back. And I would listen for the Lord and listen for the Lord. And Candy, I heard nothing. Nothing. I heard nothing. I go back and pray about it again. I hear nothing. To this day, I've heard nothing. Now, John, fortunately, it had several words from the Lord along the way and had a good vision and some things like that. Nonetheless, it's a hard road to walk. But do you see how I judge everything about my perceptions and by what I see going on? Well, if you want to impress that next one, whatever you wanted to do, six months is enough. Who am I to tell God that? I don't know what's going on. But that's how I pray. Now, sometimes I say to the Lord, this may be a stupid prayer. Now, he's so friendly and gracious. He never comes back and says, it is a stupid prayer. But to be frank with you, later I can look back and go, that was a stupid prayer. You know, because it's limited in understanding. And we do that. So rather than trust the almighty God who says, I'm walking with you every day, we tend to say, okay, God, time for you to get some instructions because you've dropped the ball here. Do, do you see yourself telling God he's dropped the ball? God does not drop the ball. Now, last two weeks ago when I was headed to the emergency room with this, you know, ventricular rhythm that wasn't good, I was about 25 minutes, I think, traveling down there. Uh, Helen told me she was just praying her husband didn't die. I was her husband. You know, she just didn't want me to die. I was just calling out to the Lord going, I don't, I don't have a grip on this. I can just tell you it's uncomfortable. But I had a really good peace about it. But I didn't like it. I didn't like it. I was telling Kathy and um, Margie about this earlier, that when my mom was dying, um, it was a few days before she died, but I was next to her bedside, and she was holding my hand, and she had mostly just been sleeping because she was on that phase of dying. But she woke up for you know, a couple of minutes or so, and she looked up at me with her eyes just a little bit and said, they are asking me to cross over. And I said, go, cross over. We're ready. All your kids are ready. Go ahead and cross over. And she put her head back in about 10 seconds. She was back asleep. Well, for about a week after that, I just had this feeling like I was right next to that door. She'd also seen a door. We'll get to that at another time. But she, you just feel like that you're on the edge of going. And then when I went back to work, I couldn't engage in work. Work was here. And I was really close to going there. And that's a much better place. And you had tasted of it a little bit. I don't know the spiritual thing on it. This was just my sense of things. And, you know, John Upchurch has passed. I mean, since the time, last times we got together, Don has passed. We've had some people go on to be with the Lord. Wonderful people. And you know they're rejoicing in heaven. Just great looking at us going, you've got a lot of great things coming. You know, they're just really happy where they are. They're really hoping we can get there soon. You know they're in a wonderful situation. I feel so good about my mom because she can see now. She doesn't have any of those pains. It's just a wonderful, that's just a wonderful thing. But when God is working within us, and he's trying to get us to the place that we don't keep something that restricts his flow in our life. We'll do things like that. We'll keep something like bitterness around. The enemy will say to us, Dick, that's just a small thing. Don't worry about that. That's just a small thing. And that was in the past. Good grief, that was 11th grade. I remember one guy when I was in the sixth grade who came up to me and said, I don't like you and I want to have a fight. I'm not going to tell you the guy's name. Some of you may know him. But he just said, I don't like you. I'm, he didn't tell me why he didn't like me. He just didn't like me, and he wanted to have a fight. I thought about that for years. What, how does that come about? What was in that guy's mind? And probably when I was about 25, the Lord just got a hold of me and said, you need to quit thinking about that. Just give it to me and go on. 
But for some reason at 25, I was still thinking, but I didn't think about it all day or anything, but it would come up like, why did that guy not like me? You know, but you have things and the Lord just wants to get bitterness and get it out. We have to be serious about it because he mentions it. And I think I'm going to try to cover one or two more. The fifth thing is unforgiveness. Now, the enemy is also a master at this, and unforgiveness and bitterness can get related. But you've got to remember that there are going to be people that are going to wrong you all your life, and we have a choice as to whether we're going to forgive them or not. Now, Jesus put tremendous emphasis on this. In the Lord's Prayer, it says, give us, forgive us of our trespasses as we forgive others of their trespasses. And Jesus went on to say, if you don't forgive others, your Father's not going to forgive you. And he was asked, and he said, well, do I need to forgive them up to seven times? And Jesus said, 70 times seven, unending. But you should be gracious and forgiving as your Father in heaven is gracious and forgiving. Now, unforgiveness is a ticklish thing because it deals with human relations. And people have done things to us that the enemy comes in and says, friend, you are justified in condemning them and hating them for what they've done. And he puts it around the description of what they've done. So if somebody went out, Saji, behind your back and started spreading rumors that were untrue, no one can say that's right. That is absolutely wrong to do. Lying and gossip lying behind your back is indefensible. And that's the way the enemy comes in. He comes in and says, look at Sarah Beth. Lying and gossip lying right behind your back. Horrible, horrible, horrible. She is horrible. Do you see? We have the act being horrible, and the enemy morphs it immediately to the person is horrible. That is a horrible person. Boy, does she need to come and ask for your forgiveness. Boy, does she need to come and tell you that she's sorry. And when she does that, you can consider forgiving her. Is she going to do that, Irene? Never. I mean, unless she meets the Lord. That person is never going to come up to you and say, I said vicious, horrible things behind your back that were untrue. I dare say no one in this room has ever had someone come up to them and with that, saying something like that. I said vicious, horrible things about you behind your back and they were untrue. I'm asking for your forgiveness. You might have, but it's a rare bird. So when the enemy says, when she comes and tells you, you can consider forgiving her, you're not going to forgive her because you're waiting for something that'll never happen. The reason I'm, I'm getting so deep on these things is the deception of the enemy is something that we don't consider. He moves things from partial truths to get something that looks like a truth so you don't really see that it's that something that needs to be addressed. And the enemy does that. And when he tempted Jesus, he quoted Scripture. He said, throw yourself down because it is written that the angels will not allow you to let your foot strike against the stone. Now, this is Satan, Satan quoting Scripture, telling the people, telling Jesus, this is the way it is, Jesus. And he is deceptive. The Scripture says he can come as an angel of light. We don't think of the enemy as an angel of light. We think of the enemy as a horrific-looking creature. He comes as an angel of light. He is deceptive. Without the discernment of the Holy Spirit, you and I will be deceived. We will be deceived. So when he comes in, he tries to take an act and define it as bad, then define the person as bad, and then the solution is when the person comes and asks for forgiveness from you, which will never happen so this is going to reside in you as unforgiveness. And if somebody asks you about it, you go, oh, I'm, I'm waiting for Sarah Jane or whatever her name was, Sarah Beth, to come up and apologize, and then we'll get this straightened out. You certainly can't think I go to her after she's done that to me. It's not up to me. It's up to her. The ball is in her court. And the enemy is always using worldly phrases. The ball is in her court. Yeah, oh, the ball. Yes, the ball is in her court. Yes. Well, that doesn't justify anything. So we see the discernment of the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit will discern all these things in us. The Bible says that the Holy Spirit convicts the world of sin. 
and he will convict us of sin. And when you allow the Lord to come inside of you, he'll find that place of unforgiveness. And he'll say, look at this. Oh, yeah, I'm waiting for Sarah Beth. She's going to come back and apologize, and we'll straighten that out. That's how that one's handled, Lord. No, you have unforgiveness sitting right here. And you say, yeah, but it's just a little unforgiveness. No, you can't have just a little of something like that. If we let sin abide, it separates us from God. You can't let little sins abide if you know their sins. Because the importance of them is that God says it shouldn't be there, not whether you judge it as a little sin or a big sin. So when you let a sin abide that you know God is talking to you about, you have refused God who is saying, let this go. You don't rank it among other sins in your neighborhood. It's God said, don't let this be there. And therefore, since God Almighty said that, it's important to get it out. Now you say, well, good grief, Jim. If we took these first five things you mentioned and got all those things straightened out, we would be super Christians. Well, yes, you would. You'd be much closer to God than we are. And then those things that God said about, you'll do the things I do and even greater things, those things will make sense because God will flow much better and can do things. But when we keep these other things around, it just stops God. It's just, it says, God, you're not the most important because you told me to get rid of it. I'm just going to hold back. Now, I'm actually going to stop on that because I'm trying not to talk too long on these things. But I do have some more to say, and we'll pick some of this up again next time. But I want to mention this, that the enemy is very concerned about believers who have moved on in following Jesus being conformed to the image of Christ and being a light to the world like Jesus was a light. He is very concerned about that. There was one guy that gave his testimony, and uh, he was actually a member of a satanic church. And he described all the things that he did in his satanic church before he met Jesus. And his assignment from that satanic church was to run the Sunday school program in a very large, multi-thousand person church. That was his assignment. And he went and took that position, and everybody was grateful because he would take that position. And what he did was he had the whole Sunday school program talking about virtues and Christian virtues and helping other people and doing these things and kept the name of Jesus out of the Sunday school program. And that was his assignment. And he talked about after he became a Christian how he went back and apologized to all those people and told them everything he did. And the, that's terrible. But you've got to recognize the enemy, that's what kind of thing that he is after. So he wants to take people that are looking at Christ and say, I've got to put some stakes in their life that keep them from moving on towards the image of Christ. And these are those stakes. And he does it in a very deceptive way. So we are to look in our life and say, well, Lord, that's, that's not going to be one that I get. I, I have several in my life. I know you have in your life, and maybe we'll cover them next time. But I hate to say it, but one of them in my life is I'm just too tired. I'm just too tired. I, I'm just too tired. <laughs> I don't know how to say it another way, but I just feel exhausted. I don't have the energy. Um, you know, I, I'm going to bring a couple more copies. I've got two books, and I want to make sure that they're available back here. should have brought them this morning, but I didn't. But the second book that I wrote, Choosing Jesus and Science, I ended up, the, the Lord stirred me to write. And I said, look, the first, the first night that he stirred me to write, <clears throat> I said, look, these are things going on in my life. If you want me to stop one of these, I'll stop them. But I don't see how I can stop them. And if you're asking me to write a book, how in the world can I do that on top of that? And so essentially what he put in my mind was looking at 9.30 to 10.30 at night. And he said, you can write then. 9.30 to 10.30. Well, I couldn't say I absolutely had a commitment between 9.30. I like to go to bed at 10.30. 9.30 and 10.30. So that particular night, I got the rest of the world done, and I was able to get upstairs at 10 o'clock. And that was the first night that I started to write. And so I said, okay, we'll do this in pieces. I'll take 30 minutes. It's probably going to take seven years to do this, but I'll take 30 minutes tonight, and we'll start. 
But my overwhelming feeling was I'm tired, even when I went up there. Now, I don't know if the Lord allows the enemy to make you feel tired. I don't know about that. But I was tired, and I was more tired than you would usually be. And so I went up there at 10 o'clock at night. Well, I didn't leave that room until quarter of two. Because what happens with the Lord is when you take an initial step with the Lord, that's all he needs. But if you sit there with the Lord and say, before I go, I need to see the three-month plan, he will not give it to you. Because do you know what we would do? I know what I would do. I have the plan. And then I'll kind of put the Lord over to the side because I have the plan. Uh, maybe Celia will remember this, but in my early 20s, I haven't gotten many flat-out visions from the Lord, but I did get this one vision in my early 20s. And we were going down, a group of us, next to Adams Stadium, which is over here on Northwood Hills Road, and it's a football stadium. And there was a group of about 40 of us, and we were roaming down, and Jesus was in the midst of the group in robes. It was Jesus. And he turned around to us and said, I'm going to teach you about football. And he had a football in his hand. And somebody grabbed the ball and said, football, that's it. And we ran out on the field and we threw the ball up in the air and somebody else would catch it and they would throw the ball up in the air and somebody else would catch it. And about 45 minutes, we were all exhausted and we sat down and the Lord came up to us and very calmly said, football is played with two teams. And this is what we said. That's what was missing. Two teams. Now we have it. And so we separated the two teams, and we threw the ball up over to this one and up over to this. And after a while, we got really bored and sat down. And then the Lord came back and said, each player on each team has a position and a function. Of course, that's it. And then we took off with our position and function. You can see the story here. But what I tended to do, which is the reason I think I got the vision, was once I felt like I had some understanding of God, I exalted that understanding above God and said, this understanding that I have is what's going to rule my life. And I know how to do that. And I can be in control and make all that happen. And what happens is you go through that and the Lord gradually lets you peter down. And then he comes back in and then you go, oh, yes, we've got the new revelation I can remember being at Zesto's at uh, Claremont and North Decatur, and there was a fellow there, and Erskine had been teaching on some stuff, and this person came up and said, there is a new revelation that is beyond the kingdom of God. And this is a revelation. It supersedes the knowledge of the kingdom of God. And this guy was just all excited. And inside I was going, wait a minute. You can't supersede the kingdom of God. How does this happen? But the point was you had to have the latest revelation. And some of you have walked in that. I know Larry Davis is here, and Larry Davis, when we were in school, uh, I'll tell this on Larry. Maybe I shouldn't tell it all together, but it was a nice thing. But Larry had just become a Christian, and Larry was like me, and you wanted to figure out, well, how does this work? And I want to make sure it all works right. And how does all this Christian life really work out? Larry got a hold of a book from a guy named Dwight J. Pentecost. Had a good name. Dwight J. Pentecost. And the name of the book was Things to Come. And, of course, if you read the Bible... There's some things you think you can understand. You get to Revelation, you go, I don't get it. I don't know what all these things are. You get into Daniel, you're going, wait a second, there's a lot of stuff here. Ezekiel is a little tough. And so, but when you get into Revelation, you've got it. And everybody, as you all know, wants to say, is it pre-tribulation rapture? Is it this? When is Jesus coming back doing this? Well, Dwight J. Pentecost had laid the whole thing out in his book. And Larry took notes. He had copious notes. I'm going to say he had 40 to 50 pages of notes personal notes that went through that thing and outlined this happens before then, this happens before then, this happened before then. And he got to the end of that whole thing and he was uh, coming before the Lord in a meeting and praying and he, he stood up and he goes, I don't know how to say this. The Lord is asking me to throw my notebook away. Because what we want to do is to grab a certain understanding, control that understanding and control our life. And God is asking us as a child to put our hand into his hand and walk with him every day. Now, if you two years ago had been told everything that was going to happen to you in the next two years, would you have believed it? Almost everybody in this room would have panicked. 
if they could see it. And if you could see the next two years, you would panic too. But God's going to take us through day by day. And that's the way we're to walk with them, not to get a revelation and then tell God how he's deviating from the understanding of his revelation, which is what we tend to do, which is what I tend to do. I'm not going to put this on other people. This is what I tend to do. Okay, so we can't put understanding up above him like that. So God is trying to move in our lives then and to make us to be something we can't conceive we could be, much less figure out how to get there. I cannot conceive how I can be the fullness of the stature of Christ. I cannot conceive how I can do greater things than Jesus did. And yet the Lord has the ability to change me and make that way. So we are pursuing the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. These are things that hold us back. Let's not let them hold us back. Let it be that when people come near us and certainly near this fellowship, that they so sense God that they're on their knees in the presence of the Lord. Let's bow our heads. Lord Jesus, we talk often about things that are too wonderful for us. We talk about things that we don't know how to get there. We don't know how to change in our life. You're the only one who knows and can change us. We surrender ourselves to you to be changed. Where we have been less than pliable, make us pliable. When we have not been willing to be poured out as wine, make us willing to be poured out as wine upon the altar. Help break down resistance inside of us. And Lord, the tendencies and habits that we have that aren't good, put a check on those and let the Holy Spirit grab us when we're heading into a sinful place and let us show what is the love and character of Christ in every situation we have in life. I pray for everybody in this room and especially, Lord, for this country and this world at this time that your grace would be poured out in Jesus and that he would be exalted, that the world might be saved. In his precious name we pray, amen.